I do love the way uh, football pundits kind of make very obvious statements like it's a game of two halves and uh, only takes a second to score a goal and all those kinds of things. I'm going to say something fairly obvious as we start this passage. It's a passage of two halves this morning and, and the way lots of our uh, translations of the Bible uh, are, are laid out gives us two parts to this passage, the church persecuted and then Philip in Samaria. And they may seem, these eight verses, in some senses, separated into two halves, but they are very, very much linked. Verses 1 to 3 indeed does see persecution spreading. It's no longer just the apostles that get a hammering. It's no longer just one of the senior leaders who comes literally under fire unto death but actually the church at large in Jerusalem, as it begins to grow, comes under persecution. But as they scatter, what happens? Do they go to ground and just say, well, yeah, that was fine. I'm out of here. Let's just move on. No. No, they continue to preach, to speak out, to proclaim the good news of Jesus. They continue through Philip's ministry to see, first of all, what Jesus was doing to show signs of the kingdom of God, then the apostles, and now Philip and others to follow would show that what Jesus said and brought to us was for real. You see, as they spoke, it wasn't just kind of, okay, news kind of just, yeah, take it or leave it. This was good news, the very best news that they had ever heard. Stephen was prepared to die for this news. And so Philip and others in the Jerusalem church scattered. And actually, as they did so, I don't know if you noticed this or remember back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said, go and preach in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria and to all the ends of the earth. Here in this chapter we begin to see the word of God spread out of Jerusalem into Samaria, an area that was very, very hostile to the Jewish people. They kind of held their own version of Judaism and there was real animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. But here the good news was proclaimed and preached. Not just in formal settings like this, but in day-to-day conversations. It wasn't just a lifestyle fad that that might just aid you and make your life a little bit more complete. This was life-changing. They knew as they spread out and spoke the good news and lived the good news that actually they could face the same fate as Stephen. They could also be killed for doing this. But they knew that this good news was life-transforming because it was about relationship between God and humanity. I want us to look at three things this morning 
just as we uh, come to this passage. I want us to think for a minute, why would people persecute Christians? Why would people persecute Christians? And I'm sure as I begin to unpack a few of those things, that you'll think of other things that might be reasons why Christians might be persecuted. Second thing I want to do is just to draw attention, in a sense, to another obvious thing, that persecution today is very much a reality, even though we might not experience it. Do you remember Emma's words not half an hour ago? Christians in in communist Romania who were frightened to acknowledge in public their love for Jesus because of the repercussions of the communist regime. That continues today, and I want us to look at that briefly. And also, importantly, I want us to look at what we are to do with this good news and the reality of persecution. But forgive me for a moment if we just kind of recap a little bit about what this good news is. Because as we get to the end of what we're talking about this morning, one of the things that we need to do is we need to be prepared to communicate the good news. And so I want us just to to revisit something that to some of you will be really familiar, to others of you, maybe you find it hard to, to put into words. But if you like, there are four very simple bits of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first bit is that God loves you. God loves you. Every single one of you. Every person out in Fivehead, in Swell and Curry Rival and Hambridge and beyond, Langport, Somerton, Somerset, England, the world. God loves this world and the people he made. He made you and he created you for fullness of life. God loves you. So why do we struggle to know him if God loves us? Maybe we can just put a little thing up here. I was going to do a little bit of... So there's God, loves us, little heart, just as a visual. Why does God love us and yet we maybe struggle to know God's love? Very simple. Sin. It's an unpopular word. It's a word that that maybe feels outmoded and outdated. But it's a word that has reality. Sin, if you like, is a rejection of God. It's about building our lives around other things. Things that actually in and of themselves are okay. Many of them. But if they exclude God, then they're sinful. Because they exclude God. It might be that our sin kind of manifests itself in in kind of selfishness towards others. Might manifest itself in, in disobedience to all sorts of things, maybe to the law. It might actually just manifest manifest itself very subtly by ignoring God. Just ignoring. That he's there, kind of knowing that, that God is there, but ignoring him. And saying, I don't want to know. It 
In the Bible it tells us that in Romans that all of us have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. And so sin, effectively, if God's up here and we're down here, this is us, this is God. Sin separates us from the God who loves us. And try as we might, try as we might to be nice maybe, try as we might to help people, try as we might to do religious things, nothing, nothing can bring us into relationship with the God who loves us. And ultimately, at the end of time, God will judge each one of us. And if sin still separates us from God, then we will experience eternal separation from God. Again, an unpopular word, an unpopular notion, hell. An eternal separation from God. But you see, God loves us so much that he wanted a solution to this. You know the story, perhaps. But God wanted us to have relationship with him. And so the third thing is that he dealt with sin in Jesus. Look at that for artistry. How about that? I'm, I'm a real Rolf Harris. No, all right, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> Can you tell what it is yet? No, you can't. But God became flesh in Jesus. And he came and he died for us to deal with our sin. And not only in that moment in history did he die, but he rose from the dead and conquered sin and death for all time. Before he died, he said this, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And in dying and in rising from the dead, he built that bridge between us and God himself. And so fourthly, we need to respond to this. Knowing that God loves us, that sin separates us, that Jesus died for us, we need to respond to this. In the Gospel of John, it says, to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. The God who made us. If we receive him, if we agree that we are sinful and that we need to turn from our sin, if we trust that God has forgiven us completely because Jesus died for us, if we choose to follow Jesus and put him first, that's the response that brings us into relationship with him. I guess there are two ways of looking at our lives, aren't there? These may be familiar to you, may not be familiar to you. There's one where me, I'm on my own little throne. Look at that throne. That is amazing, isn't it? That is a throne, honestly. It's not a letter H. And God is outside of my circle. I am in control. I am there. And God is outside. But when we accept Jesus into our life, he's on the throne. And I'm very much a part of that. But he is on the throne. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus, that God who loved the world so much, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him 
shall not die, but shall have eternal life. That was revolutionary back then. That is revolutionary today. Because it actually asks all sorts of questions if we don't believe in it. As we think about that, as we think about that very simple presentation of the gospel, why is it that people would persecute Christians? Well, back then, the big issue was Jesus. People objected to Jesus saying that he was the Son of God, that he could forgive sin. People objected to that because that blew apart every understanding of religious belief. God became flesh, died and rose again. See, this Jesus threatened the powers and the authorities in Jerusalem and in the wider world. Verse 1 of our reading this, this, this morning talks about how Saul gave, gave his approval to Stephen's death. You see, because where there are Christians, there will be others who are in power, who feel threatened by the Christian message. It actually undermines so many structures of power that actually there aren't people who are in charge, but actually God is in charge. And that's one of the big reasons why there is persecution, because actually the gospel threatens human power structures. It threatens people's understanding of, well, actually, I'm in control. I can do this. And forgetting about God. But this message says, no, you cannot. You cannot be in control and live. I guess bringing it down to beyond the kind of powers and authorities coming down to a more personal level, it links together. But actually our culture is so completely obsessed with I, with the self, with me, and my way of doing things. Because I'm worth it. I've said that before. But that pervasive sense of actually, I am in charge of my own destiny. And anybody that says anything different, well, maybe I'll just think they're jumped up or maybe I'll find them threatening. Something else that brings us persecution is because actually the exclusive claims of Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Well, those can cause a good deal of upset in our days as much as in these days. It's not that our, our belief in Jesus' claims are, are easy. Because as we walk alongside those people who don't accept those claims, that's uncomfortable. But we have a God who is just, 
in whom we can trust. But we need to see that other people will find that offensive. And as that message is preached, people will find ways of taking issue. Actually, for some, the notion that God loves everybody. Eric and Liz, when they were out in India, in a, in a country where caste is a very powerful structure in society, for people to say that, that God loves everybody from the highest to the lowest, that will blow some people's mind. I guess it comes back to threatening power. And people don't like their power to be threatened. And of course, ultimately, Satan is active and he will do everything he can to destabilize us as followers of Jesus. And persecution ain't a bad way either of stopping people or making people a bit too afraid of doing anything because they don't want to be persecuted. As we look at this model, this, this gospel presentation here, actually there will be people that will take issue with all sorts of parts of that today. Not just Jesus, but actually even that God exists. And for us to make that assertion. So there are plenty of reasons why, as, as the church grew persecution emerged. And as I said, it's not just theory. It's not just theory. And and we've got examples in India, in Romania, but today, in our world, there are people who will be killed if it is found out that they are Christian believers. It's an organisation called Open Doors. There are many other organisations who try to support persecuted Christians. But Open Doors has a list of 50 of the most threatened countries in the world. The 50 most persecuted countries in the world. Now when I looked at this the other day on the website, I kind of thought, Dave and Jenny Muse in China, China's a pretty close country to the gospel. They're the 37th most persecuted countries. There are 36 that are even less open to the gospel than China. North Korea is number one. North Korea has a system of labour camps, including a renowned prison called Prison Number 15. It currently houses 6,000 Christians. Some of those Christians will die. Because they are Christians. Because they choose to profess their faith in Jesus. Others will be released, but always have to be a part of an underground church, which, by the way, has 40,000 members. Hallelujah! In a country where you cannot even begin to articulate that you love Jesus, there are 40,000 people who follow him covertly, maybe more. Sorry, I misread that. 400,000 people. 400,000 people. North Korea is a communist dictatorship that fears the influence of anything that would destabilise 
its power structure. And so it oppresses Christians amongst others. Saudi Arabia is number two on the Open Doors watch list. A country where Islamic extremism holds a very strong grip. Where conversion to another religion is punishable by death. Where Christian worship is forbidden. Where imprisonment, beatings, deportation, torture is the likely outcome if you worship publicly. And yet despite this, I hadn't even noticed this when Emma spoke of Christian TV in Romania, but people are responding to Christian TV in Saudi Arabia. And God is using dreams to draw people to himself. There is an active Christian community in Saudi Arabia. The same goes for Afghanistan. I could go on. I think this evening, in prayer and praise, we'll take a little bit of time just to pray for the persecuted church. Come and join us as we pray for the persecuted church. You can look. I've got it at the bottom of this, um, this sheet for tomorrow, just a little link to open doors and some guidance to pray for the persecuted church. So we can see maybe why Christians might be persecuted. We can see that they are in other countries persecuted. Maybe you, actually, have experienced persecution. Maybe you have been ridiculed. Maybe you've been sidelined as a bit of a loon, as a bit of an oddity. It's kind of low level, but yeah, nonetheless, it kind of hurts. What are we to do? What are we to do as we read this passage that, yes, the church expanded and grew and and all that happened affirmed the truth and the reality of this gospel? First thing we can do is we can pray. We can pray. We can pray for persecuted Christians, people who, just like us, same flesh and blood, but have no liberty to even speak that they are Christians. But actually, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Man, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Let's pray for those people who persecute others. Let's pray that there will be changes of heart. Let's pray that for those countries abroad, but let's pray that for those people who maybe have marginalised us. And maybe we really need to ask God's help in all kinds of situations to pray for our enemies. Second thing we can do is we need to be prepared to stand firm Paul's letter to to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy, speaks of how physical training is is of some value, but training for godliness is of lasting value. We need to be prepared. I was talking last week about the Strictly Come Dancing professionals, wasn't I? And their their celebrity partners, go Deborah Meaden, 
Maybe she'll listen to this. <laughs> you never know. But they practice in anticipation of a tough challenge. Are we training ourselves? Are we spending time building ourselves up in reading scripture and encouraging one another in praying? So that when the time comes when somebody challenges us, even a little bit, we're able to stand and say, actually, no, this is the truth. Third thing we need to do is remember that Jesus has the victory. Do you see verse 8 of this passage? There was great joy in that city. This could feel like a really heavy thing, but actually there is joy in our walking with Jesus. Doesn't mean that it will always be easy. Doesn't mean it will always be plain sailing, but there is joy to be known in walking with the creator of the universe and in seeking to serve him. And fourthly, kind of said it already, but let's be ready to proclaim the gospel. Peter says it really well in his first letter. In your hearts, set Christ apart as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So often we either retreat completely, bury our heads, or we approach situations like a bull in a china shop. Let's remember the good news of Jesus. Let's be prepared to live it out, working out what it looks like in our own environments. That list of this time tomorrow activities was fantastic, actually. Those are the places where we live our daily lives where we may encounter persecution, however mild that might be. But we may also encounter the joy of being able to share Jesus with other people in our lives and with our words. Let's remember to pray. Let's be prepared to stand firm. Let's know that Jesus has the victory and let's be ready to proclaim the good news of Jesus. I'd invite you just as we come to the end of our time to think about this time tomorrow. Situations that you might well be in where you might not get the opportunity to speak the gospel this time, but you might. Pray that God would give you the grace and the courage and the strength. Maybe that this, this gospel is something that you still need to actually acknowledge. Maybe for the first time. Please don't go without speaking to myself or to Paul or to Brad, to Paul. Around Gainer. Actually, the people you came with doesn't have to be a leader in the church, it can be anybody. I've got some little booklets 
somewhere. Honest, I have. Oh, there they are, right in front of me. Called Knowing God Personally. I've only got three, but if you want to take one, please do, for yourself or for somebody else. There's an organisation called Agape that produces these ones. Gainer, I'm sure you've, you've got some alternative ones through Scripture Gift Mission, which we're going to have a look at for the cafe and so on. But please, if these are helpful to you, then, then please take one. 